Well, good morning. I assure you that um, the honor is always mine to be able to uh, break bread with uh, the Lord's people, to be able to preach the Word, to be able to share fellowship with the Lord's people. And, and I'm honored to be with God's people and understand that this is real Christianity. Amen? This is real Christianity. A lot of the things that I get to do, they're not real Christianity. And the danger becomes, um, and when I say they're not real Christianity, let me explain what I mean by that. When I get to stand up in front of a group of, you know, thousands and thousands of people at, at, at a conference somewhere or whatever, I praise God for things like that and events like that. But the danger, especially here in the U.S., and we talked about some of this earlier, the danger is that we begin to experience that over and over again, and we begin to think, this is where it's at. This is, this is real Christianity. This is what we're moving for. This is what we're striving for. And then all of a sudden, when we get into a meeting where there aren't thousands of us or even hundreds of us, where there are just dozens of us, we begin to say, number one, what have we done wrong? And number two, what can we do right so that we can then become the thousands. Do you, you, you hear me? You're hearing me. And so a lot of times, you know, people will even come into a gathering like this after having had their thinking affected this way, right? You know, you, you know, because you go to an event like that. You, you, you're with thousands of people and it just, ooh, right? And you're just going, oh man, this is like heaven. This is what, this, this is the, this is it. And now all of a sudden it's what you yearn for and you come to a meeting like this. And I know that you guys have probably experienced this. People have come to the church and they've experienced church here and they go, oh, this is okay. Maybe someday, you know, maybe someday they will arrive and have that thing that I'm looking for. But in the meantime, I'll go see somewhere else if we get, right? Because the songs we sing, man, they sound different when there's thousands of people singing them, you know? Ah, you know, when you can, you can feel it in your bones through the sound system, right? So when I say that's not real Christianity, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's just, that's not normal. That, that, that's not where our life is. Where our life is, is in real body life, where we are engaged with one another, where we are face to face with one another where it actually matters and we're getting our hands dirty in one another's lives, where we're actually offending each other and having to forgive each other and not able to just say, fine, I'll just go to this part of the thousands and not deal with you anymore. Huh? No, this is the real stuff. It really is. And and what really, and I know we were all off, we haven't even gotten started yet on the topic, but just, just okay, this is important stuff. What I've, what I've experienced, and I've been guilty of it some myself, um, we always see what's wrong with the things that we're close to, right? Um, the, the beautiful supermodel. You look at the beautiful supermodel and you just like, that's perfection. But when the beautiful supermodel looks in the mirror, all she sees is her imperfections, right? Because that's what we do. So in the United States... As American Christians, we talk a great deal about what's wrong with Christianity in America. We talk a great deal about what's where the church 
is sort of off the rails or whatever. And we have a tendency to believe that American Christianity is in this great spiral and this great crisis. That's not true. And one of the reasons that we believe that's true is because the only thing that we look at is the big picture, the thousands. We see the big mega churches in compromise. We see the big famous pastors who fall. We see the big movements that have gone astray. But what we don't pay attention to is the thousands of churches just like this one where some faithful man that few people may not even know is hammering away, faithfully expositing the Word of God, loving the people of God, being a faithful minister of the gospel. There are tens of thousands of them across this land who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and the church is healthy in America because of it. Christianity is healthy in America because of it. Don't, don't just pay attention to the big picture stuff. We got 24-hour news cycles. People think, for example, people think that you know, like certain crimes are just off the charts nowadays. It's not so much that those crimes are off the charts. It's that we have 24-hour news cycle, national news. So every time it happens, you hear about it, right? We think you know, floods. Oh, floods are just all of, no, floods have always been happening all over the place. But now there's news cameras everywhere, so every time one of them happens, we hear about it. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? So Christianity is healthy. And, and, and I'll say this before we get started here. One of the things you need to realize is this, and it's something I've come to realize, because everybody's talking about, oh, the gospel is just going forth and it's flourishing in Africa and South America and Asia and so on and so forth. And there are people coming to faith in Africa and Asia and South America. But the church, by and large, in Africa and Asia and South America is a mile wide and half an inch deep, filled with syncretism, and it is not healthy. It's not healthy. Christianity is not shifting away from America. It's just not. And if you want any piece of evidence, I'll give you one. It's the only one you need. When you think about books that you need to read, and I'm not talking about self-help books, I'm talking about sound Christian theology. You can't name three authors whose books you feel like you need to read who are not American. You can't. They're all here. The greatest and strongest churches in the world, here. The strongest preachers in the world, here. The greatest and strongest theological institutions in the world, here. And 95% of all the Christian books published in the world, here. You live in the center of the Christian universe. Be grateful for it and stop complaining. Amen? And if you don't believe me, just move somewhere for six months. That's all you've got to do. Just move outside of America for six months and you'll stop all that whining and complaining. And you'll run back and kiss the ground. Amen? Alright. So, be encouraged today. Alright? Be encouraged. Are there problems? Of course. When you've got 320 million people, of course. Right? Of course there's problems. Of course there's difficulties. But but don't miss it. Okay? Don't miss the fact that coast to coast, border to border, all across this land today, there are healthy bodies that are meeting. And all over the rest of the globe, there are people who are struggling to find a healthy church within 20, 30, 50, 100 miles of where they live. Here, when somebody in America says, ah, Ah, it's just so hard to find a healthy church. You know what they mean? They mean, I've got 15 criteria for what I want in a church. We're consumers. 
15 things that I'm looking for in a church. And 10 of the 15 aren't essential, right? And if I go to a church and there's only 13 out of the 15 things, I'm like, ah, I can't find a church. Whereas in much of the world, people are going, if I can just find the gospel. Amen? If I can just find the gospel. We're worried about what we sit on and what color the carpet is and the songs that we're singing and, you know, the, the style of the worship and all this stuff. People are going, man, if I can just find the gospel. So realize that even when you hear people saying, ah, so hard to find a church. A lot of them are going, <laughs> you know, I am a red-headed, left-handed, reformed Baptist, 1689, you know, regulative principle, hymnody, you know, instrument, you know, they go, I just can't find a church. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? <laughs> okay. And I think it's relevant to what we're talking about here because you guys are in the middle of a series on the local church. And I think in our culture, part of the problem with people's appreciation for and understanding of the necessity of the local church is our consumeristic attitude. Because we are very quick to say, you know, church equals these 15 things. And if we don't have those 15 things, forget about it. And we're just not willing to submit ourselves, partly because we don't understand what the essentials are. We don't get it. We don't get it. And we do have the luxury here of looking for the other things. And praise God for that. Amen? Praise God for that. Praise God for Walmart and Costco and, you know, and, all, you know, and for the spiritual equivalent of that. Don't apologize because God has blessed you with abundance. Amen? I, I, really, I, I've got huge bags that I'm headed back with because I live in a place where we don't have same-day Amazon delivery. We don't even have same-week Amazon delivery. Right? So, be grateful for that. Don't complain about that. Be grateful for the abundance of healthy churches around. Be grateful for all those sorts of things. But also recognize that it has a tendency to distort your view. So we have to be careful with that. Open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus. Titus chapter 1. Love the pastoral epistles. You know, First, Second Timothy and Titus. What... One of the things that you hear a lot from people, again, there's this complaint. We're complaining about the church. And when we complain about the church, people will often have their, their answer or their solution, right? And a lot of the times you'll hear people say, we just need to get back to the first century church. You know, we just need to get back to the church in the book of Acts. We just need to get back to the first century church. To which I always respond, which one? Corinth? They were, they were messed. Galatia? Thessalonica? First, the first century churches were messed up. That's why we have the epistles, folks. Amen? There were huge problems in the first century church. And so we have, the, again, completely unrealistic view. You know? And another issue is this. When we think about the again, first century church problems, why, why we have the epistles. The second thing is, we just need to get back in the church of, to, to, to the church in the book of Acts. And so, we want to go back and look at the church of Acts, and we want to be that. The book of Acts is not given to us to teach us how to do church. Narrative is not normative. The book of Acts tells us what happened. It's not prescriptive for us. Okay? For example, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, did it happen? God killed them in church. Amen. He killed them in church. Does that mean that that's the way church discipline is handled? No. 
Narrative is not normative. Yeah, praise God, brother. Amen. Right? It's not. One of the days, one of these days I'll walk into church and somebody will be, behold the feet of the men who are going to care. Right? Amen. Well, we don't want that. We don't want that. Um, and so, if when we, under, when we try to understand how we put together the church, and, and there are a lot of heretical teachings in the church today that come from people going to the book of Acts to figure out how to do church. The book of Acts is not there to teach us how to do church. The epistles are there to teach us how to do church. The book of Acts tells us what happened. The epistles tell us what's supposed to happen. Okay? The book of Acts is narrative. The epistles are normative. Then, among the epistles, we have the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are very specific in giving us instructions as to how the church is supposed to be ordered. Okay? This is where we go. This is what we look to. So, here's an example. You look at Acts chapter 6, right? And in Acts chapter 6, we have a picture of uh, deacons being selected, right? But if you want to understand the qualifications of that office, you don't go to Acts chapter 6. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because there, we have an epistle that gives us guidance as to what to do, as opposed to Acts just giving us an example of something that happened. Is this making sense? Okay? And so, Paul talks about, um, you know, in, in, in the, the, the book of Acts, we have a, a, a picture of him exercising his uh, apostleship there and exercising his eldership there. But if we want to understand what eldership is supposed to look like, we go to the pastoral epistles and we get very specific instructions on those things. So, First, Second Timothy and Titus, we have these pastoral epistles. Listen, here, here's, here's Paul's ministry in a nutshell. Paul traveled, right? He would go to various places. He's the, he's the uh, uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And so he travels. When he travels, what does he do? When he travels, he teaches. And he teaches two different ways. In the synagogue, he's taking the scriptures and he's expounding the scriptures in the synagogue and he is teaching in the synagogue why Christ is the truth to which this text points, right? And then, in the, oh, sorry, are we doing, I can stay over here. Okay, my bad. Um, and then, that, that's what he's doing in the synagogue. And then in the marketplace and everywhere else, right? He's doing that in the synagogue with the Jews. Marketplace and everywhere else with the Gentiles, what is he doing? He, he's basically giving them the gospel in meta-narrative form or the big picture form, right? You know, I, I walked around and I saw the objects of your worship, right? That which you worship in ignorance. Now I'll explain to you. And then what does he give him? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's the big picture. He's not necessarily expounding on the scriptures, but he's giving them the gospel in the, the big picture form. People come to faith. He plants a church. He makes disciples. Sometimes a few months, sometimes few years, right? And then he travels and starts all over again. But as he began to travel, there are a couple of things that began to happen. Number one, writes his epistles. Gone on a missionary journey, planted churches. He gets back. Hey, man, we got some letters for you. Here's one from Chloe and Corinth. They need your help. So he writes letters, okay? So we have the epistles. He's, he's writing these letters. Dealing with problems that are arising in the church. Dealing with questions that are arising in the churches as he's planting them. Right? But then there's a second thing happening. 
The second thing that's happening, in addition to him writing these letters, is that he's pouring his life into men. Timothy, Titus, Epaphras, John Mark. He's pouring his life into men so that they, in turn, will travel, preach, plant. Okay? So in the pastoral epistles, we have sort of the apex of Pauline ministry. Because in the pastoral epistles, we have, on the one hand, here is the writing that is a byproduct and fruit of his missionary journeys, right? But also, in addition to this just being his writing, this is his writing specifically to the men whom he mentored in order to send out. So like all of Pauline ministry comes together at its apex in its most complete form in the pastoral epistle. That's just good, y'all. Amen? So here in Titus, we have an example of this. This, this sort of, this, this, this kind of essence, you know? It's kind of like the first pressing of the olives, right? The extra virgin olive oil, the good stuff, right? We have it right here. So let's look at it here in Titus chapter 1. With a view toward understanding the importance, the centrality of the local church in our life and experience as believers. We're going to see that there's a couple of there's three things here. Let me give you these three things that we have these, when it comes to our life and our vitality as believers. We have the local church. And when I say the local church, what I mean there is godly elders and their function. Okay? When I say the local church, I mean godly elders and their function. Um, and, and beyond that, this, this, uh, this authority and, and teaching in the local church, we have the home as a disciple-making entity, okay? And then we have godly, mature men and women in the church and the ministry that they provide, both in example and in teaching, okay? The, these are the three legs of the, of the stool, if you will. And we see all of those here in this first chapter of the book of Titus. First, let's look at... The eldership, beginning at verse, let's, let's start at verse 1, because I want you to get this, the flavor of this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So here is Paul talking about his ministry. And the essence of his ministry is the preaching of the gospel for the sake of the elect, whom God has you know, laid out and chosen beforehand, both the, who the elect are and that this preaching would be a calling forth of the elect. So there's for Paul this foundation of his ministry. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. In other words, number one, true child, protege, I've mentored you, I've discipled you, and in a common faith. You're called to the same thing that I'm called to, right? Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You have to appoint elders in order to put things in order. And I want to say this. A church 
that doesn't have an eldership is out of order. Amen? A church that doesn't have an eldership is out of order. Okay? Now, this is not to say that a church that doesn't have an eldership is in sin. Because there are churches in Crete that didn't have eldership. Paul's not saying that they're in sin. He's just saying that they're out of order and we need to fix that. Now, if you don't have eldership and you have no intention of having eldership and it's not, you don't consider it a catastrophe, now you're in sin, not just out of order. Amen? Do, do, we, do we follow that? Okay. But there's another step here. A church that doesn't have an eldership is out of order. A Christian that doesn't have a church is out of order. Amen? Because here's the thing. The apostle doesn't say, I'm writing so that you can put things in order. And here's something for every individual Christian to be in order. No. No. You need to put things in order in Crete. And how do you start? Eldership in local churches, because Christians need to be in local churches. Do you follow that? And then he gives requirements. And these are important. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let me just say a word that there on that. When he says his children are believers... The, the Greek word here for believe is, is, is pistes, the same word for faith. Um, some translate this faithful children. I believe that's a better translation than this translation for a number of reasons. Number one, because he's getting ready to explain what he means here, what he's talking about. Um, he says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, secondly, we're talking about the elder and his qualifications. The elder and his qualifications has to do with his role as a parent. His role as a parent doesn't make people believers. Amen? That's the second, that, 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 that's the second issue. Third issue is, if, we literally, if he literally means that your children have to be converted, then every time a new child is born into an elder's home, he's disqualified again. So, you know, there's some significant issues with... With, with, with this, this translation. The better translation is faithful children. Okay? Um, because you can have a guy whose children are out of order, but if he is qualified for his office, he'll be dealing with them properly. So basically, you take some children who are out of order and you want to know if, they're, if, if, if their dad's qualified. Here's the question that you ask. This child is out of order. What's your response? Ah, typical. Or... You in trouble? Cause I know your daddy. Do you see? You see the difference? Okay. The qualification here has to do with the way a man is governing. We we got that? Okay. Above reproach, husband and one wife. Um, again, he is an exemplary husband and he's an exemplary father. Verse seven. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. There's the negative, right? We, don't, we expect him to not to be these things. But, here's the positive. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. There's the positive, the things that we do expect. So, there's his character. First, his home, and then his general character. And then thirdly, his teaching. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So he must hold to sound theology so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He must teach sound theology and also rebuke those who contradict it. He must defend sound theology. Hold to it, teach it, defend it. Okay? So there's the picture. There's the picture. But it's only when you understand the context of this 
that you get the why. Here's what you need to set in place in Crete. You need to set elders in place. Here's what we're looking for in elders. Why? Look at verse 10. For, here's the explanation, right? For, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole Sunday school departments, teaching what... That's not what the text says. This is an amazing truth. They must be silenced. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Folks, don't miss this. He's saying you need to set things in order in Crete. How and why? How do you set things in order? In point elders... Here's the qualification for those that you appoint as elders. Why? Because whole families are being destroyed by false teaching. So there's the second leg, right? The first, the first, the first leg for our healthy Christian life and experience is the church, its foundation, and the eldership as representative of this foundation, right? When we talk about the church as our foundation, what are you talking about? Are you talking about a building? No. Right? When you talk about a church, are you, just, are, you, are you just talking about just a gathering of people? No. Although, that's where most people try to get to. They say, no, the church is not the building, it's the gathering. That's almost right. That's almost right. Because again, they had gatherings in Crete, but the gatherings were out of order. Why? Because they didn't have eldership. So, so here's our other issue. I'm going to move again. Ready, ready, camera person? Okay. I appreciate you taking notes, but when I get ready to move, you got to... Okay? All right. So, so here's the issue. You know, I'm here, I was here for a homeschool conference. A lot of you were at the homeschool conference. And so, here's where a lot of the families in our circles have gone off the rails. The church is not the building. It's the gathering. We're several homeschool families who have a list of 15 things we're looking for. There's no church around in our area who has these 15 things. So, since the church is not the building, it's a gathering, we're going to get three or four homeschool families to gather together on Sundays, and this is going to be our church, because the church is not the building, it's the gathering. We're your elders. Do you see? Church is not the building, it's the gathering. Almost right. Almost right. There must be an eldership, and the eldership must be qualified, because Paul says so. Amen? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. Right? Are we, are we seeing this? Okay? And so, here's the other thing that's important not to negate. The, these families, right? The smallest teaching unit in the church is the family. Okay? These, these families need to be protected. Paul does not deny that. These families need to be taught. Paul does not deny that. These families need to be functioning the way families are supposed to be functioning. Paul does not deny that. But he says they are not an end in themselves. They fall under the rubric and under the authority and under the auspices of elderships. Church without eldership is out of order. Christians without church, out of order. So these things work together. And then let's look specifically now at these issues here in, in, in Crete, and then we'll look at the, the third leg. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. Now, go back up to the first paragraph, 
Remember, we started in verse 1. Let's, let, I want you to see some things here. Paul, a servant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So there's faith. And we now see that these people need to be rebuked so they can be sound in faith. I'm an apostle. What's my apostleship about? The faith of God's elect. And then the second thing, and their knowledge of the truth. Thirdly, which accords with godliness. Faith based in knowledge, which bears the fruit of godliness. Now, watch what's happening here. The Cretans, the testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Why? Because they're not sound in faith. Paul's ministry exists. Why? So that people can be sound in faith. Eldership needs to exist in Crete. Why? So that these people who are not sound in faith and are evil beasts and greedy gluttons can be sound in faith. Great. Now, this faith is in accordance with the knowledge of the... Okay, let's keep reading. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the... Ah, ah. Now, in the first paragraph, we saw faith and truth, which accords with godliness. So now, if Paul is sort of recapitulating the same argument, the next thing that we ought to see is what? Godliness, right? Well, let's keep reading. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works or deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What's that? Godliness. Faith, rooted in truth, which bears the fruit of godliness. Paul says, that's his ministry. He tells Titus, this needs to be your ministry. And oh, by the way, here's Crete. Here's what's wrong in Crete that needs to be set right in Crete, which is answered by this same ministry. And it's the ministry of preaching. That's why in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we see teaching again. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the commands of God our Savior. So Paul says the basis of this ministry is his preaching, this apostolic preaching. Verse 9. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict. There's the preaching of the apostles that Titus is to establish. And then he reiterates it again in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. My apostolic ministry is built on this preaching. Pointed at faith that accords with the truth and bears the fruit of godliness. You need to find elders who will engage in this preaching. Pointed at faith. Founded on the truth, which results in godliness. Because you're in a place that lacks faith and truth, and therefore lacks godliness. So, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the teaching of the eldership. This is the teaching of the people of God. This is the teaching that is to be mirrored in our homes. Let's look at that third leg. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. There we go. That teaching again. 
and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then, in case you didn't get it the first three times, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. There is your teaching and your conduct put together again in case you missed it. And so now we have this eldership, leg number one. Secondly, we have families who are doing what God has called and commanded families to do. That's leg number two. And then thirdly, we have godly, mature men and women in the church who are modeling this and engaging life on life in instructing younger believers in this. This is body life, folks. This is body life. You don't get this at a 10,000-person conference. And, and, and this is why I spent all that time talking about that earlier on, because we're beginning to create this image in our minds of Christianity that is stadium-based. What do you need? I need the conference. I need the event. I need the boost. I need... The, no. What you need is a godly eldership committed to sound teaching that is pointed at faith based in the truth that leads to godliness. What you need is your family who is being submitted to this and shaped by this and modeling it in the teaching that you're doing in the home that is pointed in faith, rooted in the truth that leads to godliness. And you need to be in relationship with mature men and women in the church who've been at this for a while so that they have faith based in that truth that is led over time to a track record of godliness so that they can model it for you. This is body life. This is what the church is. This is what the church looks like. It's a mess. It's a glorious mess. Amen? This, this is what Paul gave his life for. It's what he gave his life to. And this is what he's, what he's raising up. Young Timothy and young Titus and Epaphras and John Mark. And up. This is what he's raising, up, raising them up for. Because this is the way that the gospel marks, marches forward into the next generation. And it's the only way that the gospel marches forward into the next generation. Again, there are more details about what this eldership looks like. And I praise God that you guys are going through this series and dealing with the local church and the essence of it and what it does. And all, you know, all, all of that is, is vital. But today, I, I just I want you to see the big picture. I want you to understand the essence of the Christian existence and ethos and how you cannot separate this from body life. You, you, you just, what does this look like if you take eldership out of it? Now it's not just a mess, it's a hot mess, right? No longer a glorious mess, it's just a hot mess. If you take eldership out of it, the rails aren't there, the boundaries aren't there, the checks and balances aren't there, the gifts of God aren't there. See, eldership requires these gifts and callings. Right? There's measurable things there. You take away the checks and balances of the measurable things, and where are we going? Now, again, this is no guarantee. There's still difficulties that come. But praise be to God that when we are functioning in accordance with the teaching of the Scriptures and the Bible becomes our authority for faith and practice, 
even when the wheels fall off, we know where to go to get new wheels. Amen? <laughs> so no, this is not a guarantee against problems and sin and difficulties and, you know, that's not it. But, folks, this is also the beauty of the church when it is submitted to the apostolic authority. There are churches who have been through horrible experiences and they still stand. There are marriages. Some of you could probably stand up and testify. There are marriages that have been through horrible experiences. But if you're rooted and grounded in God, rooted and grounded in the gospel, rooted and grounded in His Word, you stand up and testify. We've been married for 40, 50, 60 years. 20 years ago, we almost didn't make it. Right? That's a real testimony. And there are churches who have that testimony. I love the... Uh, was with John MacArthur. You know, you mentioned John MacArthur earlier. I was with him last week and uh, in, a, in a, a meeting of some guys. And one of the things I love, John MacArthur started pastoring Grace Community Church there in the L.A. area the year I was born. My hometown, the year I was born, okay? And so I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 next year. He'll celebrate his 50th anniversary. And he's still in L.A. I'm gone, right? But he's, he's still right there at that church. Um, a lot of people don't realize Johnny Mac almost lost Grace Community Church. He was almost ousted. His elders were meeting to get rid of him at one point early on in his ministry there. It was a mess. It got ugly. But when you're committed to the apostolic teaching, I'm telling you, it's no guarantee that the wheels won't fall off, but you know where to go get some replacements. You can survive difficulty come out on the other side still running the race. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Amen? If you're running the 100 meters and you stumble, you're toast. You can be Usain Bolt. You stumble out of the blocks, you're toast. If you're running a marathon, you can fall on your face. <laughs> and you still got time to get up and win that thing, right? Praise God that our journey is a marathon. It's an ultra marathon, not a sprint. Because falling is the norm. Amen? But we know where to go get wheels when the wheels fall off. And we praise God for the bride of Christ. The glorious, imperfect, yet being perfected bride of Christ. May we love her as He does. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank You for Your kindness toward us. For Your goodness in our lives. For the church, the glorious bride of Christ. Thank You for healthy bodies of believers led by godly elders, submitted to Your Word, teaching that truth that produces godliness. Thank You for homes and families that are committed to faithfully modeling and teaching this truth day to day. Thank You for godly, mature men and women in the church whose lives have been shaped by this truth over the years and who give of themselves to transmit this truth and life-on-life -life relationships with younger believers. And thank You for the magnificent way that all of these things come together to bear fruit for the sake of Christ, who gave His very life for this. Grant by Your grace that we would give our lives to the thing He gave His life for, that Christ might indeed have the fullness of the reward for which He died, and that we might indeed have the fullness of Christ in us, the hope of glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.